so you can you can treat it. Um, that's fine. So, so squamous cell carcinoma, that's the most common kind, that's fine. So risk factors, please know your risk factors. HPV is the most common risk factor. That is really important to know. Um, so any other STDs, so another big one that we haven't, I didn't write it in, but HIV or if you've got full low needs, either one, that is probably the second most um, likely sexually transmitted disease to cause cervical cancer. So number one is HPV, number two is usually AIDS or um, HIV. Um, anything else, so having lots of kids. Um, now the idea about having lots of kids, multiple pregnancies, and when they say multiple pregnancies, they're talking not about if you lost the pregnancy in the first or second trimester, and not at that point. But if you've actually delivered a child, there's a lot of trauma that can happen to the cervix, and with trauma, of course, you can lay down scar tissue and you can change the DNA. So this is actually helping you in uterine cancer having lots of kids. But unfortunately, having lots of kids will predispose you to cervical cancer because of the damage to the cervix. Um, so yes, darker women or black women more. And then contraceptives, um, that's, if you use contraceptives um, and then you stop, let's say, and you don't use them for anywhere between seven to 10 years, I wrote down 10, but it could be up to seven years depending on how good your body rids the hormones you actually no longer have a risk factor. So that's great. So if you are hormonally, um, synthetically free for a prolonged period of time, then you no longer have the risk, which is great. Sexual partners is a big thing because it increases your risk for STDs. So the major issue here is it's asymptomatic in the early stage, which is why it doesn't usually get diagnosed in stage one. But now when you're in stage two, it may get diagnosed, and usually by stage three, it's usually pretty clear. So abnormal bleeding. So if people are talking about spotting in their mid-cycle, that's abnormal. Or if they're having their periods are usually three, four, five days, and now they're like seven or eight or nine days, that would be abnormal. So any changes for no reason. So it's not that they're pregnant, they haven't taken any medications, um, there's no reason for the hormonal change, but there's been a change in bleeding. That is a red flag. You can get Okay, so my question would be, um, is this something new or has it always been like that? Because if it is something new, and it wasn't super rough, for example, um, or there was, weren't any other things being used that might cause additional trauma, um, then I would want to get that checked out. Because there's been a change, and usually a change is not a good sign. It could be nothing, but that could also be a sign. So to me, it wouldn't be worth just dismissing it. Um, all right, so bowel bladder functions, I mean, you could have painful urination, you could have um, difficulty urinating, um, you could have a very low amount of urine that comes out, but that's usually quite, again, late stage. So usually at that point, it's already started to spread. So that's a little bit too late at that point. And then sexual difficulties just usually means pain with sex, which again, oftentimes is kind of late stage. So the bleeding is the big one to look for. I mean, any change is not good, go get it checked out but the bleeding is usually gonna be one of the first early, earlier symptoms. So, pap 
Pap are going to be the best way to diagnose this. So unfortunately, the government now only does Paps every three years. They used to do them yearly, but they don't do them yearly anymore. They went from yearly to every two years, now they do them every three years. If you have an abnormal pap, they will usually do it yearly for about three years, and then they put you back to the every three year mark. But that is the best way to diagnose this. So, of course we know early detection is key, so going from one year to two years to three years is not fantastic, but anyways. Um, doing an HPV test, so the HPV test itself um, is essentially like a pap. So they put a speculum in, they open up the vagina and the cervix, and then they basically scrape the layers off, which is exactly what they do in a pap. It's just that what they're looking for under the microscope is different. So they're going to be looking at the epithelial cells for a pap smear, where they're actually going to be looking for the virus when they're looking at an HPV test. So the HPV test could be done during a pap, because the only difference is what's happening in the lab. Okay, so it's the exact same test. Uh, colposcopy, like we said, that's just taking the camera and going up the vagina, up to the cervix, and looking to see if there's any damage. And then the biopsy, obviously we know what that is, taking that component out. So, prevention, use protection. So oral contraceptives don't count as protection, it really has to be the barrier. So using condoms, for example, would be ideal. And then obviously minimizing your access to sexually transmitted diseases. So minimizing your partners and keeping yourself protected. So the HPV vaccine, we already kind of talked about that. So um, if you do have an abnormal pap, usually they will send you for a colposcopy first, which is when they take the camera up and then they're gonna kind of clean up the area. If they do, they'll usually do five colposcopies. They'll keep, so they'll send you for another pap and if it's still positive, they'll send you for another colposcopy. So they'll do anywhere, anywhere between three to five colposcopies. If at that point they still haven't rectified it, then they'll go in laparoscopically and clean everything out that way laser. Um, but those are usually ways that you can try and prevent this. So this is preventable, which is wonderful. So both uterine cancer and cervical cancer should be able to be, to be diagnosed early and should be preventable. The big issue is gonna be ovarian cancer, which we're gonna talk about in just a minute. So, we will hear Meg's story. Oh my God, seriously, we just dealt with this. Bells, and I said it was cancer. It didn't feel real at first. They took their pap smear, and I went back for follow-up testing, and they did more. Um, scrapings and analysis of the cells, and I said it was cancer. It didn't feel real at first. Like it took me a, a second to process it, and I didn't tell anyone I had cancer for about two months because I really I didn't know how to tell anyone. I was I think I was afraid. I felt guilty telling people that I loved, and I didn't want them to worry and to go through it. So at first I kind of thought, you know, maybe I'll get the cancer removed and it'll be done with real quick. But then I realized kind of quickly it's a longer process and I needed support. So I told everyone at Easter, which is a weird time, but everyone was together. It was the first time I saw my family in person. For me, treatment was all about where, to have, where am I going to be after treatment. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but I was really concerned about can I have kids. Um, I was 24. I always wanted to be a mom. And that was one of the things that kept coming into my mind. What is, you know, I don't want to have everything removed, I don't want my cervix out, I don't want a hysterectomy because I want that chance. So for me, but for me, treatment was about just fighting for a chance to have something that I wanted 
So I chose um, a little bit longer of a treatment and more radiation, but I had a lot less taken out. And now I'm finally pregnant, and it was worth it. So for me, treatment was a, a long journey. But I'm glad I did that, and I'm glad my doctor, who worked a lot with women who wanted to have babies and who had um, reproductive cancers, she was really good about, you know, if we, we, we could take it out and you'd be done with it, or else if we, you know, you would have to fight a little longer, but it was worth it. So treatment meant for me a chance. Did I have a hard time finding information about cancer and the treatment? I did. Um, I went online and it was like, first you get hit with so much information and it's hard to figure out what information is relevant, what's not relevant. And you get some terrifying stories and I'm like, I don't want to read this right now. And it's probably the last thing you want to see. Um, and then some information was just too medical. I didn't understand it because I don't have a medical background. So it was hard to get information for me. Um, I think it's really important though to find out treatment options. I don't think there are a lot of good resources that tell you all of your different options for treatment. So I was lucky because um, I was in Boston, so I was at Dana-Farber, and they have really good doctors. So I had um, really good doctor who really explained me different treatment options. And then I happened to have an uncle who works um, in the cancer research field. So he was a really good resource. But if I didn't have that, I would have had a hard time finding any kind of helpful information or support, really. I would have changed my experience. Nope. Okay, you get the idea. Um, okay, so ectopic pregnancies. Not the greatest of topics, but <clears throat> typically when um, a female ovulates, we know that the egg is going to eventually leave the ovary and then get swept up by the fimbriae, which is the distal part of the fallopian tubes. And then it kind of sits in here and waits in the fallopian tubes or uterine tubes or oviduct. It sits, the ovary will sit in here, the egg will sit in here waiting for the sperm to come up. So the sperm's gonna come up through the vagina, the cervix, go through the uterus and then up the fallopian tube and then they're gonna meet right here. If they meet, then you've got fertilization. So now you've got an embryo. The embryo is gonna take anywhere between five to six days to get back into the uterus and implanted to the endometrium. That is normal, which we know. Now what happens, for example, if there's been damage to the, let's say the fimbriae, and it doesn't bring the egg all the way up? Could the sperm come all the way and implant at the fimbriae? For sure. What if by chance I had some scar tissue or I had um, damage to the fallopian tube and now I implant here and I can't pass because it's kind of kinked, it's damaged here. So the sperm was able to get there, but once it started to grow in those two, three, four, five, six days when it's supposed to be moving into the cervix or into the uterus, it can't because there's damage. What happens? It will grow in the fallopian tube. So that is an ectopic pregnancy. So basically a pregnancy, so an embryo that is implanted somewhere other than where it's supposed to be implanted, which is in the endometrium of the uterus. That would be an ectopic pregnancy. So what do you think the symptoms would be for an ectopic pregnancy? So yeah, usually 
oftentimes there'll be the same symptoms of pregnancy, meaning like you've missed your menstrual cycle, right? That's pretty normal. And if you get a pregnancy test, typically every two days, your HCGs, your human gonotropic hormone is supposed to increase. Every two days, it's supposed to double. So if you go get blood tests, you'll never, you won't know this from your pee stick. So if you do the pee stick, you won't know if you have an ectopic pregnancy or a normal pregnancy. But if you get the blood test, you'll be able to see if your HCG levels double every second day. And if they double every second day, then that's a normal pregnancy. If they do not double every second day, that's an abnormal pregnancy, which means the high chance of an ectopic pregnancy is, is there. Okay, so blood tests to check to see if you're pregnant is really important because they'll be able to diagnose whether it's an ectopic pregnancy or not. So that's number one. Number two is gonna be the pain. It's usually excruciating. Imagine you've got a growing embryo in this small tube. So as the embryo is growing, the tube is having to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And if it keeps growing, what could happen? Right. So usually before the 12th week, at some point between kind of like week 6 and 12, that fallopian tube will rupture. And the problem with that is that now you have stuff going into the peritoneum, which is supposed to be sterile, number one. And number two, it's full of blood supply, so you could bleed out. Yeah, you can die from this, which is why it's a medical emergency. So sorry, you had a question. Yeah, so you know how, it doesn't happen very often, but I know somebody that was pregnant and she didn't know and then had a full term baby at nine months, she had a full pregnancy, she didn't know she was pregnant. Oh, okay. How does that happen? I don't. related to this, but like. I don't really understand that. Is she a very large lady? Nope. She said she gained like seven pounds or something over the course of her like, Are you kidding? What an yeah i don't i don't really understand that okay yeah i don't i mean there are so many symptoms in pregnancy that i don't know how you wouldn't have symptoms now you can still bleed during pregnancy which people could think they're having their period so i get that well but if you're really small if you're really small like babies like i feel like if you're really small that would be even more profound because there's less room inside your body i don't know like percentage of body fat that you're supposed to have to be able to 10% body menstruate because I also yes. have a friend that amenorrhea is very common with yeah. females that are high Gymnast. athletes. Yes. Yeah. So she had an eating disorder and yeah. she didn't have any body fat and then gained like literally 10 pounds. Didn't think anything of it because the doctor told her she would never have a kid. Had unprotected sex and got pregnant. That's so remember your estrogen stores in fat so if you have no estrogen you're having a hard time getting through your first part like getting to ovulation so if you're not getting to ovulation how are you going to get the LH surge if you don't have strong estrogen you don't so you don't ovulate so that's kind of the problem if you don't ovulate then why are you fluffing off the uterine lining and there's not enough estrogen to be able to drop to be able to cause that sloughing off. So yeah, that's very common with females, like aggressive athletes, female athletes that are high elite, that's really common. Amenorrhea, where they don't bleed. But how does she, oh, but 
still release the egg, but don't bleed. No, they no don't and they don't, they don't ovulate oftentimes. Oh, but she thinks she got pregnant. Yeah. But that's after she gained she a little bit of weight, right? Weight. Yeah. Oh, I see. I don't know. 10% body fat isn't a lot. No. I don't know how long. Like, she moved to Australia in June, and she was pregnant in July. So she, it must have been a month. And I mean, again, if the body rectifies itself with hormones, is it possible? Because if you've got the estrogen, then you could have the LH surge, you could have the ovulation, right? So that would be some really great sperm. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, the pregnancy that you wouldn't know for the whole, I don't know. I don't understand that. So what we need to know about um, ectopic pregnancies is that it's a medical emergency. That's really, really, really important because typically by the 12th week, the fallopian tube has burst. And if it's burst, then you're in shock and you can bleed out in like hours. So this is very, very, very dangerous. So um, we talked about all of that. So anything that could block the passage of the embryo to get into the uterus, so any kind of damage in the fallopian tube can increase your risk. If you've had an ectopic pregnancy before, so this is the thing, it really increases your risk. So I have a, a patient actually, she had an ectopic pregnancy. So she had an infant, everything was great. Got pregnant again, it was an ectopic pregnancy. She was having significant pain. She said it was a 10 out of 10, worse than birth. She said, so she knew something was wrong, went to the hospital, they did an ultrasound and it was at eight weeks so they could actually see it. Um, and so they caught it before it burst and they basically did surgery, but she really still wanted kids so they didn't take everything out. They just did a, a clean out essentially and get, put her on methotrexate to be able to prevent it because um, that's a low dose cancer treatment which will basically kill off any cells that are reproducing quickly so it kills the fetus. Um, but it was to save her life. So she got pregnant again about a year and a half later and right as soon as she found out that she was pregnant, her doctor said, you know, you have to go on methotrexate and she refused and they said the likelihood of you having another ectopic pregnancy is high. very high so we need to prevent the pregnancy before it gets too big so as soon as she found out i think she was about three weeks they wanted to take the methotrexate she refused she said i'm going to wait until i get really bad symptoms and when i get the pain then i'll know there's a problem the doctor was concerned because if it bursts like this yeah, is like a big yeah. thing right so she waited and luckily enough, they did an ultrasound and it had normally implanted into the uterus. So she was very lucky. But so that you are aware, because patients will probably tell you this, if they've had one ectopic pregnancy, the doctors will push for them to lose the next pregnancy because the likelihood of it being ectopic is actually quite significant. So that's a huge risk factor. So just keep that in mind. And if it's early in the pregnancy, like if it's usually within the first five to six weeks, they won't do any surgery. They'll just give you methotrexate, which will basically kill off, kill right? off the, the, the so fetus. Is it like a self-miscarriage, um, uh, Essentially, yeah. It would be a medically induced one, yeah. Um, but if it got bigger, usually if it's within kind of that like eight to 12-week period, they'll usually go and do surgery and do methotrexate as a combined treatment, making sure that there's no chance of the fetus surviving. So we should definitely know about those. So amenorrhea is an early symptom. But I mean, if you're pregnant, you're typically not, not having your menstrual cycle. So that would be something that would be normal in pregnancy. Or irregular vaginal bleeding or spotting. That's actually not all that uncommon again in pregnancy. So 
Now, they do say that's one of the things, if you're pregnant, that you look for. Because if you are having some bleeding, you want to get that checked out. Because it could be a side of ectopic pregnancy. It could just be normal. Okay? Um, and then low back pain. Pelvic mass, you're probably not going to be able to feel it unless you're getting to getting big enough, like a, a week 9, 10, 11, 12. You're not gonna, really going to be able to feel it. But they're going to complain of significant pelvic pain. And this is, it's like, it's excruciating. It's either pelvic pain or low back pain. Usually it's pelvic. So those are big, big symptoms. After it's ruptured, so after the 12-week mark, if it's ruptured, now you're going to basically go into shock. They're going to be super dizzy. They're probably going to faint. Um, their blood pressure is going to drop like there's nobody's business. The kidneys are going to shut down, and they're usually going to be dead within like a day or two. So it's significant. Okay. So the amount of bleeding that can happen is quite significant. So we already talked about the treatments. Methotrexate is going to be the early treatment, and then surgery will be a later treatment along with the methotrexate. So um, I think... I know. Why? Because they've left it too long. Because not many people know the signs or symptoms of an ectopic pregnancy. I don't Medical health. Yeah. Your life was in serious danger. Yeah, like a lot of your girls have actually died because of they've left it too long. Because not many people know the signs or symptoms of an ectopic pregnancy. I know I didn't know anything about it when it happened to me. So that's why I became um, the founder of the Ectopic Pregnancy Trust, just to really get it out there so that everyone knows what what to look out for, like what happens because it's just it's such an awful thing to have to go through, and I don't think many people are that well educated on it. Well, you were, you were shooting a promo weren't you for Geordie Shaw at the yeah, time and yeah. so you were having what was it like cramping it, like, it felt like I was having been stabbed in the side of, like on the on the left hand side or the right hand side it was the worst pain it felt like cramp and I had abnormal bleeding but at the time I just thought it was a period but the bleeding was very thin and very watery and it what it was a pain I can't describe and it only got worse and worse and I left it for a week because I did just think it was it was just cramps yeah and so, um, so thankfully you're, you're okay. Yes. Um, and you were told that you can have children. In the I can future. have children. Yes. Um, and that's what began the the spiral of, of no, feeling bad. The feeling, the feeling of the badness was. I was so anxious about. I was just thinking of all these situations in my head. Is it going to come out in the press? Is it going to be leaked by someone? Like I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't know how to deal with it myself at the time. When I th first found out, when I was in the hospital, and we looked at the scan on the screen, it was just clouds. Like it was clouds of blood. The whole of me tube had actually ruptured and was split open so that all had to get taken away the first thought was am i going to be able to have children and that's the thing that just hits you and you're like i'm, I'm obviously a woman Holly. i want to have plenty of children so that was the worst thing and also you were going through it on your own because gaz was way filming at the time yeah yeah he was so, doing x on the beach so yeah, so i had all of that obviously it was on top of us as well so i was speaking to someone at the time this, this psychiatrist and he really helped like oh, good. helped put everything in a like perspective help us deal with everything I was getting anxious about. Obviously there's a huge psychological component but so the pain was excruciating and she waited a week. That's significant, right? So and it did end up bursting. So that is like a medical emergency. So just be aware of these symptoms because ectopic pregnancies are very, 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 very dangerous. So the last thing we're going to talk about today is ovarian cancer. We're going to end on a high note, folks. Yeah, we're doing all the cancers today. It's very depressing. It's even really the short end. 
Well, no, men can listen, we talked about prostate cancer last week, and yeah, yeah. Well, prostate would be equivalent to like uterine cancer, right? But yes, ovarian cancer, this one, we need to know about it. So this is the really, really, really dangerous one. So the prognosis is like very, very, very poor. It's usually diagnosed in the stage three or four, which means it's already metastasized. So it's usually palliative treatment by the time it gets treated, or by the time it gets diagnosed. So this is the same as pancreatic cancer, right? It's just as bad. The prognosis is very, very, very poor. So obviously ovarian cancer means cancer of the ovary. So you're gonna see that the ovary is going to be huge in comparison, right? Because the DNA just went crazy and it usually, hyperplasia and hypertrophy occur and the cells get much bigger and it grows. So this is going to be the second most common urogenital female disorder. So, I mean, that's kind of significant because this is the one that you're usually gonna die from. So- First is endometriosis, right? This is, this is I don't know if it's as common. No, it definitely wouldn't be as common because endometriosis happens in like 50% at some point. This is the most second most common. So what's the first component? Uterine cancer. Oh, it's the most common. It's the most common cancer, yeah. Um, so uh, blah, 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 what do we need to know about? Okay, family history. So this we should probably know. Now, a chan ovarian or breast cancer. Oh, hi. Oh, mommy. Good, how are you? <laughs> Where's everybody? <laughs> this is us. That's I think we're missing like one or two. No, we're missing two. We're missing two. Danielle and Michelle. Right. Oh, and yeah. So sorry, we're missing three. Look a little No. Come on. Don't tell her what it is. You gotta tell her how bright she looks. Come on. She's glowing. Who comes out with that kid? That's sweat. That's sweat. Take care. Um, okay, so sorry, where are we at? Oh yeah, family history, right. If you had, if there's a history of breast cancer or, ovary, or or previous history of ovarian cancer, that's really significant, okay? So breast cancer, you are likely to get it diagnosed early and survive it. So if there's a history of breast cancer um, and you develop ovarian cancer, chances are you're not gonna survive that. So we really need to look at the symptoms. If there's a history of breast cancer, please keep this in the back of your mind, okay? Because this is really key. Yeah, so this lady that I know, her mom died two years ago from ovarian cancer, and she just got diagnosed last year. So crazy, and she's, thankfully, they actually gave her a good prognosis. They, they, took, they took everything out, and she went through chemo, um, and they said she should be okay. They didn't see it spread anywhere. Awesome. But so they must have detected it really early. Yeah, so, but it's crazy that it would just literally be her mom gets it, dies, and then a year later she gets it. So it's just crazy how... That is the number one risk factor, is the genetic component. So that's, that's like, we should definitely know that. Um, okay, so it is more common in older women. So uterine cancer is usually after menopause, so again, around your 50s, 60s. And then ovarian cancer is going to be usually your older individuals. Whereas cervical cancer is usually going to be, you usually contract it in your teens or 20s, so usually by your 30s or 40s you're being developed, you're developing cervical cancer. So it is usually of like younger to midlife. So when you're reading a case and people are talking about the symptoms, because some of the symptoms are similar, like the whole bleeding and the pain, 
what can help you identify this is the age, right? So that, that's one thing to keep in mind. I don't really care about the normal anatomy. It's normally in the epithelial tissue, which is on the outside, but that's fine. It doesn't really matter. Um, okay, so symptoms. Let's look how vague the symptoms are. So if you had pelvic pain, would you be concerned? Could be your period. If you had some bloating, maybe I haven't pooped in a while, right? Maybe I didn't get it all out of my colon. What about eating? You don't really want to eat. You don't really feel super hungry. Could be. Flatulence, so you're farting up a storm. You feel tired. Your stomach's a little upset. You're going to say that you're farting up a storm and you've maybe got a little bit of pain because your stomach's upset, right? Like, you're going to rationalize all of this. And then, so what in that list makes you think you might have cancer? That's the problem. And then, well, at that, at, so, I mean, this could be so many things. So the problem with this, and this is why it doesn't get diagnosed early, is that the symptoms are so vague. The early symptoms are very, very vague. You can chalk it up to so many things. She just had the one symptom. Which one? The bloating. That's it. That's it. If that's the only symptom you would have. I bet some people bloat all the time. Yeah. Again. She said it was like, like hard. But, and, and again, you're looking for a change. Yeah. So if this was a symptom that they had for the last 10, 15 years, I'm not concerned. But if now they told me I feel different now, it's a different bloating, it's harder, it's more painful, that change should be the ding, 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 right? Um, what, like, because I see there has like a blood test. So if you have like early, early, early ovarian cancer, would that still come up? Because my friend okay. is, she must have been 21 when she got diagnosed as super, super early, early. With ovarian cancer? Yes early, early stages that she's going to be okay, um, but I don't, like, I don't talk to that often, so I don't know how they figured that out. So the CRE-125 is actually not a diagnostic test. They usually will find it through an MRI or a CT, um, and then they'll usually do the CRE-125 to be able to confirm it is, in fact, uterine cancer. So um, I don't know if they're going to be able to specialize the test so it does become a diagnostic test, but right now it's just to confirm the type of cancer and not necessarily to diagnose ovarian cancer you early. an elevation of white blood cells in your CBC count, though? You may, but you may not, um, right? Because you are fighting something, but it may not be significant enough that it actually gets caught. And, like, does that usually happen to someone who's 21? It's not very common in younger individuals. Now, is there a family history would be my question of anything. It is, they are linked, and it's really not common at that age, but we know cancer can happen at any age. When we talk about the epidemiology, it's just when it's most common, right? So it's possible, but not common at all. So the late stage, unexplained weight loss, okay, now that's, a red flag, right? So now you're concerned, right? Because unexplained weight loss, that's a red flag. So then we talk about weakness. Is that normal? Is wasting away, losing a whole bunch of body fat, losing muscle mass, so we call it cachexia. That's not normal. So the late stages might get you to the doctor, but by then, you're at stage three or four. And it's if you're at stage four, it's definitely palliative. If you're on stage three, they might look into some, some treatments and some surgery. 
So that's kind of the problem with this, is that the symptoms are vague. So yes, they can do um, the blood test, CA-125, but again, it's not a diagnostic test. Once they've done a pap and they find it, or once they've done an MRI or they find it, once they've done an ultrasound and they find it, then they do that test. Yeah, unfortunately. So if it's caught in stage two or three, they'll usually just try and, well, they'll take everything out. If you're not wanting to have kids, they'll do a full hysterectomy. Um, if not, they'll do a partial hysterectomy. So if you just have the ovarian cancer on one side, they'll just take out the one ovary and the fallopian tube and try and leave everything else intact. Um, but if you're done having kids, which normally you are, because this is usually diagnosed older in older individuals, then they'll just do a full hysterectomy. Now, if it's stage three or four, there's no point doing a total hysterectomy because it's already spread. It's gone to the lymph nodes and it's gone to other organs. So at that point, you're looking at chemo radiation. And really, how far is it? Is it worth doing the chemo radiation? So we need to know the prognosis is very, very poor. for ovarian cancer. That's probably gonna be the one thing I really need you guys to focus on, is that is the worst one. Because the symptoms are so vague, it doesn't get caught early. So usually by the time it gets diagnosed, it's too late. So this is the staging system, but again, it's pretty much the same thing. If it's in the ovary, it's stage one. If it starts to spread to the outside of the ovaries and a little bit into the fallopian tubes, it'll be stage two. Now, if it starts to jump into the lymphatics in the area, it'll be stage three. If it goes into the peritoneum or other organs, now you're at stage four. So it's pretty much consistent with most of the um, staging systems, right? It's not gonna be any different. Now look at this. 64% of women diagnosed with ovarian cancer will die. It is the worst one. 50% of women with cervical cancer will die. Much better, I, I know not great, but better. Breast cancer is only 31. And in uterine cancer is 23. So really, when we're talking about the prognosis, it's really, uterine's the best if you want any cancer. You don't, Put your but Put your if you did, <laughs> that would be the one. Cervical would be the next one, and then you don't want ovarian, okay? Because typically by the time it gets diagnosed, it's too late. So let's look at a video. Dr. Oz, Dr. Oz you gotta love, you gotta love Dr. Oz. Come on. Here, um. I want you just to feel, because they begin to realize how precious and sacred our bodies are, and how to pay attention to it. This is a uterus with ovaries. Next to it. So small. Mm -hmm. the uterus here. And I want you just to feel that ovary. Feel this one right here. That's a normal ovary. Mm -hmm. And I want you to compare that to what the doctors found in you. Wow. So that little ovary, that little thing, the little appendage here became as large as a grapefruit. Go ahead and lift it up and I would just. Oh. That's just the ovary. <laughs> what is it like to walk around with that? The flattened part underneath would be the uterus. I had no idea. This was in me. It was, that was, Both of the ovaries so shocking. So, you caught your ovarian cancer early. The ovaries. you share with everybody what those signs are? The first sign was pain. It looks like it, yep. Abdominal pain. It's urinary frequency of urgency. Is it bilateral? Not oftentimes. It's difficulty eating or feeling full quickly. Is indigestion or nausea or constipation. Yes. So which of those? <laughs> <laughs> Every single one. Every one of them. Every one of them. Every one. 
Um, it started out very mild. Then when I was doubled over in pain with the pelvic, uh, the pelvic pain that so many women have, we chalk it up to stress. But I knew that's when I turned on your show. And I hadn't seen the show in a while. And it, that day it was on the fibroids. So I, Pharma. yeah, it was on fibroids, which were cancerous, but it led me to, okay, maybe that's what I have. I didn't think it was dangerous. So why do you want to be here today? I want to pay it forward. You know, I am extremely grateful to be alive. And, and if I can help one person and, you know, to pay it forward, just like you helped me, and I wanted to thank you. That's fine. So I, I do this want you guys to. Rebecca yeah. Robinson, who has generously shared her story and health history for educational purposes. She speaks for women whose lives could have been saved, and she gives a candid perspective on how a misdiagnosis affects quality of life and outcome. Well, I was diagnosed with stage 3C fallopian tube cancer in December of 2010. Um, my symptoms began about six months earlier in June and I started having uh, problems with my bladder. It was uh, pressure, um, not really pain, not really burning, just a lot of pressure. And so I went to see my gynecologist and my first appointment was with a nurse practitioner. And you know, they, took, they did a urine culture and it came back negative. And she said, well, you know, I think that you drink too much caffeine and maybe too much alcohol. So she said, you know, go home, let's try it for four weeks, cutting out caffeine and alcohol and see how you do. I went home, things weren't getting better. I still had the persistent bladder problems, um, getting a little bit of abdominal discomfort. So I went back and the second time I went, I actually saw the doctor and they did an ultrasound and they found a small cyst. So they said, go away for eight weeks, come go back, away. we'll go check away. it again. So I went away, and maybe mm, four or so weeks later, my symptoms persisted and in fact got worse. I started having you know, problems with my bowels, um, just that, that, that chronic, never-ending dis discomfort. So I went back before the eight weeks was up and they did another ultrasound and they found three cysts that time. At one point, I think it was maybe the third visit at the doctor, I had a pamphlet. They had given me a pamphlet about ovarian cysts. And in the pamphlet was a list of ovarian cancer symptoms. And I sat on the table and I looked at the doctor and I said, I have every symptom on this list. What are we gonna do about this? So I guess I wish at that point she would have said, yeah, you do have all those symptoms. I think we should you know, take the next step and maybe do a CT or do a CA-125. Um, and I would have been diagnosed maybe a few months sooner. She said, oh, you know, they're just cysts. You know, I'm not too worried about it. You're young. I was only 42 at the time. Um, and again, that's young for ovarian cancer for though. An eight week, you know, let's see what happens. Well, within four weeks, I was in just, you know, couldn't even stand up when I was walking. You know, I called and I said, I have to come back in. You have to do something. Something's really wrong. And I went back in and they did another ultrasound. Then the doctor came into, came into the room and said, well, you're not going to like this. But I, I think that you may have ovarian cancer. 
and we're going to need to send you, you know, to the University of Iowa. Everyone from the nurse practitioners to the physician assistants, you know, looking outside of the set of statistics that define an ovarian cancer patient. Um, I didn't fall into that age group. Um, I had no other health issues. I, I felt I fell outside the box. And so I think that they need to not dismiss women like me who present with these symptoms because we don't fall into the normal ovarian cancer patient. I so finding a doctor. The reason I wanted to show you guys that is because there are so many misdiagnoses and things could be diagnosed a lot earlier than they are. And the thing is, you guys, you may not be able to do testing to be able to confirm these things, but if you've got a suspicion or a hunch, push. Tell them to get a second opinion. Tell them to go to another doctor. Tell them to go to another hospital. Because you are part of the healthcare team, and if you've got a bad feeling about something, there's probably a reason for it. So oftentimes people are going to come to you with a diagnosis and I'm going to tell you a lot of times it's the wrong diagnosis. So don't listen to physios, don't listen to chiros, don't listen to osteos, don't listen to neuros, neurologists, don't listen to doctors. Do your own testing and make sure that you're good with your clinical impression because a lot of times it's misdiagnosed. So yes, you may be the first person to detect something like this, right? Which is huge. Okay, so that's all I was doing today. Next week, we're going to do the rest of the pregnancy issues, and we're going to do, like, breast issues. Um, so we're finishing off female, and then we're going to do sexually transmitted diseases. Just a quick once over on them. And then after that, we're doing urogenital. Kidney and bladder. Any questions? We're good. Okay. What are you posting your marks? Well, I'm gonna, I have to meet with someone for like 15 minutes and then I'll have like 10 minutes to mark. I probably, I probably won't get them fully marked until like tonight. Like, okay. Well, I, I want to have it done tonight, so. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I would like to have, I will have them posted before midnight tonight. <laughs> Before midnight, for sure. For sure. <laughs> we don't go to bed until like 11 or 12 because that's one of the feeding times, so you might as well just like. Yeah, you might as well, right? Yeah, really. I really am. Oh, really? Oh, cool, that.